We're in 2 Samuel chapter 11. We'll actually be taking up the entire chapter today. But I'm just going to get us started by reading what we read last time we were revisiting this. The first five verses of chapter 11. So this is 2 Samuel 11. And we're going to start off by reading the first five verses. We're going to cover the rest though, um, I think, throughout the, the sermon. The precious, inerrant, infallible word of God says, It happened in the spring year, in the spring of the year, excuse me, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. For she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. First Baptist Church of Greg Abel's, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Lord, you have, you've already provided abundantly for your people this morning. Lord, as we've already opened up your word, having it read, sung, prayed, and now we prepare to have it preached. We thank you that you've given us the word of Christ as we're pointed toward our desperate need for a savior and your great provision In that Savior, your Son, Father, would you help your people to see more clearly this morning that we might believe more fully, that we might love more deeply, that you might make us holy. Would you be with those who are not able to be with us this morning, Father? Continue to grant your people every grace, all mercy, and every spiritual blessing through your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, if you know me well, you know that my favorite sport is baseball, and it's baseball season. So, here's a baseball analogy for you. In baseball, there's three strikes, and that's right. Well, chapter 11 is actually a little bit like that. That's why I entitled the sermon, David at the Bat, the play on the great poem, Casey at the Bat. Three strikes, three pitches... And it's seen today in our text as three people and three sins. Three people come, and then there are three acts of disobedience on the part of David that follow. If life were baseball, David would be out. Let's walk through the chapter this morning. We're going to see the pitches. We're going to acknowledge the strikes. And Lord willing, we're going to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those three pitches are identified as three people who come to David. Now, you'll notice in your bulletin that we have pitch, strike, pitch, strike, strike, pitch. That's on purpose. That wasn't a typo. Uh, Hopefully, you do have your bulletin so you can follow it along. But uh, three pitches are identified easily in the Hebrew as three people who come to David. So you'll read, uh, for instance, in verse 4, Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him. She came to him is the Hebrew word verb, bow. We're actually going to see three bows. There are also going to be three nagads. 
In the English, that word is the word declare. So Bo is to come, Nagad is to declare, and you'll see three of those clearly in the text. You can actually think of those Nagads, those declare, like the umpire calling the strike. It's after each of the bows. David's action requires a declaration that, that hints at the problem. In other words, there's three pitches, three called strikes. David is out, almost. So let's look and see it in the text. Before we dive in, verses 1 through 2, we, we already have some red flags that this passage is about to lead us south. That's what we see in the introduction. Some, some red flags here. We looked at those briefly a couple weeks ago, uh, but we need to see them in order to see how this really starts to go south. The first red flag is seen at the very beginning. In that phrase, when the kings go out to battle. Did you notice that in verse 1? When the kings go out to battle, well, that's a problem. What's David? Yeah, he's, he's a king, but he's at home, right? It happened in the spring of the year at the time when the kings go out. That's Yasa. But David was shellacking. David is a shellacker, one might say. He's a cinder. That's the Hebrew word for cinder. So it is at the very beginning, while the, the kings are yasaing, David is shellacking. The kings are, kings are going out to battle, and David's sending out to battle. Interestingly enough, this is really where the baseball metaphor also works really well. David is standing at the plate with his feet dug in, but his bat's not even up. In fact, I saw a clip this week of a baseball player who did this very same thing. He had two strikes, Bob, and he, he sat there and he had his bat up. And when the pitch came, he put his bat down and the pitch went right down the middle. Strike three, you're out. And everybody's like, what, what's he doing? This is exactly what David's doing in this text. He's standing at the plate, his feet are dug in, his bat doesn't even lift up and he doesn't even move, just staring at the pitches going straight down the middle. Everyone else in the passage is moving all around, but David is a stationary, static figure. He sins and he receives, but he does not yasa, does not go out. So that's the first red flag. Second red flag here in the sections in verse 2, and it's this phrase again, one evening that David arose from his bed. Might not strike you as something that's a little bit off there, but, but David has apparently spent the entire afternoon on the couch. He's arising from the bed for a walk around his roof as it approaches a time when others might be headed towards the bed. Just, here's what's interesting. You just pause right there in those first two red flags and those first two verses. And, and we're going to ask, who in the world is this guy? This isn't David, right? I mean, is this the David we've learned to know throughout the rest of Samuel? What has happened to our beloved David, even in these two red flags? This David who slayed Goliath with a sling and a stone. The man who struck down his ten thousands. The man who lived on the lamb, hiding in the wilderness, even surviving in enemy territory. The man who rode after the Amalekites with just 400 men to rescue women and children. I mean, David, in our mind up to this point, he's a warrior, right? He's a man's man. But, but now, even at the outset... There are hints that David's nothing more than a fat and lazy king. It's just crazy. It's a little bit like if, you, if you're a fan of the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies, it's a little bit like watching Thor Ragnarok turn into Thor from Endgame, right? Already 
In the opening two verses, there's a picture being painted that's just unsettling. David seems to be letting the kingship go to his head and it's making him spiritually lazy. It's as though Deuteronomy 32.15 actually applies to David where it says, David, not David, but applies to David. David grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, you grew thick, you are obese. Then he forsook God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. See, there's a, there's a sense in this present evil age where we can apply this text now and say this. Maybe you've experienced this. Did you know that comforts can cripple? Did you know that? It's really the application, even the first two verses we can immediately see here. There is an inherent temptation with prosperity in this present evil age. There are plenty of examples throughout the Bible that comforts can cripple. None greater than David's son, Solomon. Right? Who, despite all of his wisdom, is going to prove to be susceptible to this disease. Prosperity often invites spiritual lethargy. Even blindness. It it tempts humans to deny their constant and vital need for the mercy of their God. Proverbs chapter 30 verses 8 through 9, it actually states this principle very clearly. Where it says, remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Well, the rest of verse 2 actually confirms our concerns about David's lack of spiritual fitness. His physical slothfulness is symbolic of his spiritual slothfulness. David looks out over the city and when his eye comes upon a beautiful woman bathing, there is not a single hint of shame. No mention of his attempting to avert his gaze. Instead, he apparently looks close enough to determine that her appearance is very pleasing. And here comes the first pitch. Pitch number one. The wife of Uriah came to David. Bathsheba came to David. Bathsheba came to David. That's the first pitch. That's the first bow as we see it in the Hebrew. Verses 3 through 5, they really are remarkable. I noticed this this week just for their abruptness. Right? After David sins and inquires about the woman, he receives an immediate answer from one of his servants. This is the wife of Uriah. And then what we have in those three verses are really just a piling up of verbs that kind of tell the whole story. He sins... In order to take, she came and he lay. He sends, takes, she arrives, he lays, and then he sends home. It all just happens very quickly. Except for verse 5, right? Verse 5 records the results of these actions. The first pitch is a strike right down the middle. And the result is the first declaration, the first nagad, the first declaration saying, David hears from the messenger, strike one. I'm pregnant. Strike one, I am pregnant. It's interesting that this wonderful symbol of blessing is actually here used as an indictment of sin. David's sin has found him out. And now what? 
See, this is a narrative that, that you and I were actually supposed to get all caught up in. The action has happened. The result is clear. And so the question is, well, what's David going to do? There's an opportunity right here between verses 5 and 6 to pause and consider. See, I would, I would note an important lesson that we learn from David is that spiritual slothfulness is dangerous. Friends, hear me. In a combat zone, you don't set aside your weapons, change into your swimsuit, and enjoy a holiday at the beach. As the modern philosopher Shai Lin says in his Cosmic Powers, there's a war going on outside no man is safe from. Do you believe that? I would add to that there's a war going on inside that none of us are safe from in our own hearts. Sin is crouching at the door, so you better not leave your door open. Practically, it's different how this works out for each one of us, yet it's the same in that no one gets away without fighting. There is always sin to put to death. There's always cosmic powers to deny on the outside and sin to mortify on the inside. Always Christ to cling to. Always to trust and obey him. All of us need to be mindful. Listen, if David, the man after God's own heart, can be susceptible to such a great fall, then who's above it? So the take home, the application so far then is... Not fighting is falling. You need to know that. Not fighting is falling. I was talking to the men yesterday at the men's breakfast. Sin is not passive, it's active. Sin is is always waiting. It doesn't rest. It's waiting, crouching at the door, fighting against you. And not fighting it will result in falling. There's no neutral If you're not working out physically, you're becoming unfit. That applies physically and spiritually. We're we're focused here, though, on the spiritual. Pitch number two is about to come. He's winding up. Not only did Bathsheba come to David, but now here comes the pitch. Uriah comes to David. Uriah bows to David. We see this in verses 6 through 9 as we're now caught up in this drama. We see this unfold in this way. It says in verse 6, Then David sent Joab saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing, how the people were doing, and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house and a gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. At the outset, I want you to notice something about this Uriah. Um, At the very beginning, just by his name, we have to recognize that Uriah is an unlikely character. He he really is. Uriah is an unlikely character. As soon as you come to verse 6 and you, you read about Uriah the Hittite, you realize that. By his name... We know being a Hittite, he's a descendant of Heth, a a second son of Canaan. So already we know that Uriah is in the line of the cursed ones. The Hittites are one of the people groups we find in Genesis 15 that, get this, are to be driven out of the promised land. In fact, they are to come out of the complete band, so none of the Hittites are to survive. Uriah the Hittite... Serving David the king. In fact, if this were a different story, I think this guy would make probably the perfect bad guy. 
Except this is the Lord's story. This is redemptive history. And so those who should be left on the outside find themselves on the inside, find themselves actually exhibiting greater faith than the Israelites at times in redemptive history. And we should also get another hint from his name. Uriah's name means flame or light of Yahweh. So this Hittite is likely a follower of Israel's God. This is another Rahab or another Ruth, a non-Israelite in the flesh who is a true Israelite at heart. That would make this another instance of the Lord using the foolish to shame the wise and the weak in the world to shame the strong. And the purpose for that has always been that no human being might boast in the presence of God, not even King David. This Uriah, the cursed Canaanite, is going to shame the wise, strong, proud David. Notice, by the way, how much sending, how much shellacking he does in these verses. It says David sent and sins. Joab sins. Uriah is the only one who bows. He comes to David. Same verb we found in reference to Bathsheba in verse 4. And you find it in verse 7. When, when Uriah comes, David's plan is just going to play it cool. Right? He asks him about the battle at Rabbah. And after the pretense of caring about the battle, David begins to execute his own cover-up plan. He commands Uriah, go down to his house and bathe his feet. Using the same verb of Bathsheba in verse 2. Bathe, washing your feet. It's a, listen, this is a reasonable command in the culture, but it also could be euphemistic. <laughs> Some commentators actually argue for that. He's given him a wink-wink and a hint-hint. Either way, David's intention is clear here, isn't it? Get Uriah to go down to his house so that he will lay, or shakab, with his wife. Therefore, covering up the sin of David, shakabing, or laying with his wife. The question really becomes for the reader as we follow this narrative this. Will Uriah go down to his house? Is he going to go down to his house? That phrase, go down to his house, it's used in verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, verse 11, verse 13, twice actually in verse 10. In fact, the whole story is going to end with that verb. You could just frame it. This is David's problem. Uriah will not go down to his house. And now the brevity of the first five verses stands in contrast with this extended scene that now unfolds before us. Will David give up his game? Will he confess his sins and throw himself at the mercy of his God? And as we're reading through this the first time, that's what we're hoping for, right? Surely at some point he'll give up the game. He'll ask for mercy. He'll accept responsibility for his sin. See, part of the reason it has to be framed like that is, is this section is full of suspense that's a little bit lost in the English. It appears for just a brief moment as you're reading through the text that the plan may work. David commands Uriah. Uriah goes out. A gift follows a portion of honor, most likely from David's table. Food and drink, you know, set the mood a little bit. Probably included some candles and a romantic violin player. I don't, I don't know, but, but obviously the stage is set. And sure enough, we read that Uriah laid with the servants, not with his wife. Same verb. And just in case we missed it, the end of verse 9 tells us again, he did not go down to his house. But there are snitches in Jerusalem. David most likely 
had them following Uriah to make sure that he went down to his house. And in verse 10, we read the second called strike. The second to God, strike two. Uriah did not go down to his house. That, friends, that's a problem for David. It's a big problem. Look at verse 10. It says, so when they told David, saying Uriah did not go down to his house, and then look, the, the scene just immediately switches, and David's now talking to Uriah. Let's cut right to the chase. David's a little bit beside himself here. He's like, Uriah, what's wrong with you? That's, that's my paraphrase, but it says in the text, David said to Uriah, did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? You just came from a long journey. Why? Why didn't you just go down to your house? And as I was reading this, I'm so sorry, but I couldn't help but not think of Adam Sandler and Happy Gilmore where he's mad at the golf ball, right? And he just says, go home, ball. Why don't you just go home? That's David now. Uriah, just go home. Are you too good for your home, right? But then verse 11, we hear the response of a, of a true Israelite. And this is, this is jarring in verse 11, isn't it? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel, David, the ark and Israel are dwelling in tents and, and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord, they're encamped in open fields. Shall I then go to my house and to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. This is, by the way, the first and only time that Uriah speaks in this passage. David, the ark, Israel, Judah, Joab, they're dwelling in tents. The other soldiers are, are camped out in the open field. Uriah can't imagine partaking in any of the symbols of rest while his brothers are out at war. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? It's a rhetorical question. But it's also a stinging indictment to David, isn't it? While the Lord, the ark, Israel, Judah, Joab, and his servants are across the Jordan fighting the enemies of God. Should Uriah enjoy rest? No. Why? Because Uriah is like his God. He, he's actually bearing the image of his God who in chapter 7 reminded David that he did not rest until his people had rest. Uriah says no. On your life, David, I will not do this thing. And there are actually a couple things that make this even worse, if possible. First, like I've already pointed out, Uriah's a Hittite, not an Israelite. Not according to the flesh, anyway. Here we actually have an illustration of what Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 through 29, where he says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Uriah is not concerned about the praise of David. He directly disobeys King David when David ordered him to go down to his house. He is concerned about the praise of his God. That makes this all the worse. Uriah is a Hittite, he's not an Israelite. Second, What's interesting here is Uriah would not have been breaking a specific commandment. It, it, had he gone down to his, his house and lie with his wife, that's not breaking a specific commandment here. Unlike David, who took Bathsheba unlawfully, Uriah could have taken his wife lawfully. 
But doing so would have impeded his ability to return to his brothers. And he did not think it right for him to enjoy the fruit of peace during a time of war. He refused to reach out and take the good in order to have the great, the honor of fighting besides his brothers. Meanwhile, King David extended his hand and took what was evil. Finally, what what really is the icing on the cake that makes this situation just absolutely terrible is Uriah's final words are an oath of love that leads to his death. Don't you see that? Uriah's final words are an oath of love that leads to his death. Not on David's life would Uriah do this thing. Uriah binds himself to remain pure from women so he may join Israel from the battle of Rabbah. His oath ultimately though seals his fate. But David's got another trick up his sleeve. A Hail Mary of sorts if you will. Look at verse 12 with me. And then David said to Uriah, wait here today also. And tomorrow I'll let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him and he made him drunk. David commands Uriah, dwell in Jerusalem with me, bro. Just, just for the night, at least for tonight. Tomorrow I'll send you on your way. So Uriah agrees, okay, one more night. And it turns out to be a last supper of sorts, doesn't it? David calls for Uriah and succeeds in getting Uriah to to eat and to drink, even to get drunk. Now, what's interesting is if you notice Uriah's words, Uriah said he wouldn't eat, drink, and lay with his wife. So David has two out of three. Like the meatloaf song, two out of three ain't bad. At least not for David, because that's all he's going to get. And as we read these final words for the second time, Uriah went out to lie on his bed. Whoop. That could be good. No bed last time. It was just the entrance to the gate, right? He's laying down on a bed now. Uriah goes down to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord. Again? Oh, man. In fact, that's where it ends. He went out to lie on his bed with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. The curtain falls. The narrator declares these final words. Now what? Uriah is faithful and David is in trouble. (laughs) Uriah's obedience to what is right and true, as we will see shortly, will cost him his life. And you almost have to sit there and say, what's the application we get from this one? You have to look at Uriah and say, what a picture of Jesus. Jesus is the true and better Uriah, obviously except for the intoxicated part, but... Jesus is the true and better Uriah who does not reach out and take the kingdom that rightfully belongs to him. Instead, what? He desires to do the will of his father to win his eternal rest for his brothers and sisters like Uriah. He would not compromise for the sake of his mission in the end. Like Uriah, Jesus would be betrayed like the leaders of Israel. His companions would abandon him and he would be handed over to the enemy who would strike him down outside the city wall. Like Uriah, Jesus came carrying his own death order. Like Uriah, Jesus would not die for his own sins, but because of the sin of transgressions of others. Like Uriah, it was the adultery of his bride even that sent him to his death. It was the one who deceived his bride that moved Judas to betray him. Unlike Uriah though, 
Jesus was truly and completely innocent without sin. Unlike Uriah, Jesus' death redeemed his bride, accomplishing our salvation. And unlike Uriah, Jesus didn't stay dead. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and is only, the only name under heaven given among men by which anyone may be saved. So we could even right now pause and praise God for our true and better Uriah. But there's more. Verse 14. In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab. David's letter is specific He's the one here who's actually laying out the plan. Verse 15. Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. Put Uriah towards the front of the fiercest battle. Then everyone withdraw so that he is struck down and killed. Joab in verse 16 obeys his king. He gives Or presents even Uriah to the place that was known to have the best warriors. In verse 17, we read this. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the people of the servants of David fell. And Uriah the Hittite died also. Problem solved. That was a close one. Verses 19 through 21 records Joab's instructions to the messenger. Who was to deliver the report. And we actually have... The Nagad here before the bow. But they're still intricately connected. That's why we have the strike before the pitch. It's as almost as if the umpire says, This one's going to be a strike three. Let me go ahead and call it. Even before the pitch is thrown. The declaration is from Joab back in verse 18. This is the third Nagad, except this declaration's really strange. Just the way he says it. Is strange. He could have just said, tell him what happened. And, and messenger, make sure just to lead off that Uriah's dead. Lead off with that, buddy. Instead, he says, go and give King David a report of the war. And, and if the king's rage is raised up, then this is what you need to say. Verse 20, why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Verse 21, this just pff, struck me this week. Who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Was it not a woman who cast a piece of millstone on him from the wall? Why did you go near the wall? What's it got to do with anything, right? Who's Abimelech? Well, I'm glad you asked. Thank you. We meet him in Judges chapter 9. Abimelech's the son of Gideon. He's one of the sons of actually Gideon's servants. So the rest of the sons of Gideon, they don't like him very much. And as it turns out, he didn't like the sons either. So he talks his kin into making him king. And then he follows up with murdering 70 of his own brothers. One brother escapes. That brother pronounces a curse upon him that eventually falls literally on his head as a woman drops a millstone on him. Now, remember what we encounter here in 2 Samuel chapter 11, right? It's a, it's a historical reporting, but it's with a purpose. The details are significant. The way this is recorded, it draws special attention to what Joab says to the messenger. If David's angry, ask him who struck the Abimelech. Who put an end to the very first dynasty in Israel, you might say. Was it not a woman, David? What are you doing, King David? See, any association with Abimelech is less than flattering. Abimelech was a ruthless and cruel and evil king, but, but David's looking a lot like Abimelech right now. And just as a woman brought an end to Abimelech, could it be a woman... That brings an end to David and the Davidic dynasty. 
Either way, the three declares and the gods tell the same story. I'm pregnant. He did not go down. Who killed Abimelech? (laughs) That's strike three. Who killed Abimelech? They serve as a threefold indictment. And it gets worse because now that the strike's called, the pitch has to come. Pitch number three. The messenger came to David. Strike three, who killed Abimelech? Pitch three, the messenger came to David. Listen to the messenger's report here in verses 23 and 24. The messenger said to David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archers shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. By the way, Did you notice that David didn't respond to any of the first stuff? Right? You you almost get the impression he's sitting on the edge of his seat just going, and? (laughs) Right? I know we had servants struck down. And? Keep going. Come on. And then he hears what he'd been waiting to hear. Also, Uriah the Hittite is dead. And David sends a message back to Joab in verse 25. And let me just tell you, these are some of the most coldest, chilling words you will find any place in the Bible. Because he actually takes the very same words of Uriah when when Uriah said, as you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. David takes those words and look what he says to Joab. Do not let this thing displease you. Joab. It, It happens, man. Right? The sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. Be strong, man. It happens. Yada, yada. Other kingly sentiments. The, the warrior poet has turned uh, Prince Humperdinck into Princess Bride, right? Joab's the six-finger man. Joab, don't worry about it. You know, I'm terribly busy with a baby on a way, a husband to dispose of, a kingdom to overthrow, an adultery to cover up. Have fun storming Rabah. We'll catch up when you get back to the city. This last offense actually makes his sin complete. He, he now looks just like the ancient enemy of God's people. When Bathsheba came, David stole. When Uriah came, David destroyed. When the messenger came, David deceived. That reminds me of John 8 and John 10, a description of the devil. This is David in 2 Samuel 11. And I think we, we do well to remember that not all sin is the same. And I would actually make an argument that this strike is, is even worse I know it's hard to say that because the first two are just so heinously wicked. But I really think this is actually a greater sin. David has honor. Remember, he's the honor one and it comes with great responsibility. And here he reveals how how far he's really fallen. His words portray a man that does not know Yahweh. I'm not making a statement that, that he's not saved. He obviously is. We will see that. But I'm saying that David here is bringing himself under the curses we find elsewhere in Scripture. Under Isaiah 5.20 that says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. What devastatingly dark words David delivers. Do not let this thing displease you. And if you look at the Hebrew, really a more literal translation of this text is... Joab, don't let this thing be evil in your sight. Well, if it's not evil, it's good. Didn't David say after Joab killed, you remember Abner, by the way? You remember the story of Joab and Abner? 
When Joab killed Abner in a far more understandable circumstance than this, remember this from 2 Samuel 3. David says to Joab, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I'm weak today, though anointed king, and these men, the sons of Zariah, are too harsh for me. The Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Despite David's judgment on the matter in chapter 11, the word of the Lord is clear. It's part of the curses in Deuteronomy 27, verses 19 through 24, verse 19. Cursed is the one who perverts the justice due the stranger. Verse 24, cursed is the one who attacks his neighbor secretly. David's fall is complete. He leaves nothing left. David should have sent a message calling for sackcloth and ashes, not encouraging Joab to be strong. Then the next verse just just drives the nail into the proverbial coffin. Verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. This is how far, listen, how, did you hear that? This is how the author follows David's deceitful, destructive message to Joab. Verse 26, what does he say? The wife of who? Uriah? Uriah, her what? Husband? And she mourned for her what? Husband! Listen, David lamented over his enemy Saul and Abner, who was at best just an opportunist. Yet the faithful Uriah, he says, do not let this be evil in your sight. Joab, come on, man. Be strong. Bathsheba is lamenting the husband of her youth. David's adding on a room in his palace for Bathsheba and his new baby. This is sick and twisted stuff. But that's the world, right? That's the world we live in. That's just life. So it goes. Oh, well, I mean, guys, all worked out in the end, didn't it? Just the way it is. Injustice is inevitable. Her grieving passes. David sins again. He does some more shellacking here. Gathers up Bathsheba, brings her to himself. Man, I'm glad that's over. It all turned out well in the end. Let's go ahead and pray. Oh, wait, hold on. Forgot that last part in verse 27. Did you see it? Just probably insignificant. One little tiny part there. One saw problem. I think that David probably didn't calculate that when he was coming up with his plan. But this whole thing, it's, um, it's like evil in the sight of the Lord. It displeased him. And that matters. <laughs> See what it says at the end? But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So how do we apply this at the end? See, as you walk through that narrative, if you do it how the author intends you to walk through it, the Lord is completely absent in 2 Samuel 11, isn't he? That's the problem. You remember when we said David was at his best? When he was inquiring of the Lord. Do you see any of that here? I sure didn't. There's a man conniving, scheming, doing, executing his plan. He's got all the power to do so. He commands so people obey. He sends, they go. He calls them to come, takes what he wants, and it's all going to work out in the end because he's King David. But friends, remember, in the very end, we all stand naked before a just and holy God. There are a thousand different ways we could directly apply this. But one of the things we learn from this passage is that God will not be mocked. God will not be mocked. 
think about what we just read, guys. I mean, it's supposed to be jarring. It's meant to shock us because it's shocking. But in the end, who's got the final word? The Lord does. In the end, it does not please him. Listen, God is always a character in the Bible. We know that. We know he's in every passage. But I think we miss sometimes the fact that God is always an active agent in history as a whole. Our government, the media, and anyone else can tell us all not to worry about the evils of the day. Listen, you know, babies are aborted. It's not a problem if children want to transition genders. These things, they just happen. One scalpel devours over here and there. It's, it's just a part of life. Don't let it displease you. But the bigger matter, friends, is, is it evil in the eyes of the Lord? If it is, then it must be evil in our eyes as well. We are to see how the Lord sees, not how the word, world tells us. And friends... If that's offensive, I don't care. And you can't either. But it's not just out there, is it? There's an application for in here as well. You need to hear this. Here's the application for in here. Sin still has consequences in the life of God's people. Sin has consequences. It's what sin brings. We cannot sin with impunity. Sin is always a denial of our God. It's always a darkening of the mind. It's always a hardening of the heart. And everywhere it bears fruit is the same. We could be warned this morning to know that in the end the Lord will not be mocked. But we also see though, not only does sin have consequences, but one more thing that provides us great hope. Steadfast love has consequences as well. Steadfast love has consequences. I'm going to have to reach into next week in chapter 12 here, but we need to hear it. Where sin increased in David, grace increased all the more. That is clearly depicted in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. The function of chapter 11 is is to record the increase of sin in order to dispel the myth of merit. David's sin in order of Deuteronomy 27, it warrants a curse. He and Israel, they should be swept away. But steadfast love has consequences. Steadfast love puts our sin away, as Nathan will say in 2 Samuel 12, 13. It doesn't remove the consequences, but it does transform transform them into the good and kind discipline of a loving father. Steadfast love doesn't remove the temporary physical consequences of sin, but it does remove the eternal spiritual consequence that is the eternal displeasure of the only true and living God. Steadfast love secures for every David, that's all of us by the way, our glory. Steadfast love secures our final commendation of a father who has delighted in us from before the foundation of the world. Who will someday pronounce over us that blessed commendation, well done my good and faithful servant. And friends, if you hear that and think, it makes me, want to, makes me feel good, like I've done good here. That's not what you're supposed to hear when you, you think of well done my good and faithful servant as, as if you've done some good. 
When you hear, well done, my faith, good and faithful servant, you're supposed to say, me? Good and faithful, Lord? You know why you're going to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant? It's because you're tied to the only good and faithful servant, Jesus Christ. Amen. Only way you'll hear it. Praise be to God for that. Here's the crazy thing. David's going to hear that commendation. He's probably already heard it. David, this guy, 2 Samuel 11, David. So we can trust that our God is able to put our sins away, especially as we see that made manifest through the sending of his own son. So let us have confidence to continue to declare the steadfast love of God to one another, even now. As we pray, as we prepare to take the Lord's table, as we fellowship, even tonight, friends, we are objects of a steadfast and loving God who puts our sin away. The reality is, if your greatest sin was recorded in history, you can get real self-righteous, can't you? But if it was recorded in history for all to see, you wouldn't leave your house. And yet David has this recorded, is granted repentance, and though he continues to suffer consequences, he's redeemed. It's the most important thing you can ask for, to be redeemed. Would you stand as we pray together now? Gracious Father, the seeds of, of David's sin abide in the heart of every human being. They're not made fully manifest at any given moment solely because of grace. Sometimes common grace, sometimes sanctifying grace. So Lord, we, we do not judge David in righteousness, but instead recognize that we would be like him in every way if it were not for the righteousness of your son, Jesus. Father, we thank you for the consequence of your steadfast love made manifest in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even as we long for the consummation of that steadfast love at his return, would you help us to remember to continue to worship and praise you? In his precious name we pray. Amen.